Hola, mis amigos. And friends. No, let's not go there yet. <laughs> Welcome back to Jaffaville. This is an idea I've been wanting to do for quite some time. I've wanted us to just do something that engages with Mexican popular culture. You see, Jaffaville, we call it an American adventure. Yes. Not United States of American adventure. Uh -huh. Despite what I saw written in The Guardian in 1949 as part of my research, Mexico is in North America. And this might go out a couple of days before. If things get really bad, it might go out on the day. The 16th of September is Mexican Independence Day, so that's good enough for me. Well, you're clearly more qualified to talk about this than I am. Mildly more qualified. I mean, normally we like to do things that are researched to within an inch of their lives. This time there's going to be a little bit more stumbling around in the dark. In fact, we are in an entirely black cellar with no light. Gary is stumbling around utterly devoid of anything to light his way. I have the screen on my phone, so I have a little bit of light, but really not enough. I would like to point out that I am a semi-regular viewer of ESPN Deportivo, and also Deportes. I have seen Galavision. And you've watched El Chavo. I have. On I Galavision. decided not to do El Chavo today because I'm not sure there's quite enough we can say about it. Once you get past the fact that... It's adults stressed as children. It doesn't really pull its punches about how desperate life can be at a certain level of Mexican society. It doesn't pull its punches when people get punched. As one bit, I remember you got the closed fist. <laughs> Instead, we're going to look at the career of Mario Moreno Reyes Cantinflas, who has been described as the Mexican Charlie Chaplin by people... <laughs> who might not have seen any Canteen Flesh films or any Charlie Chaplin films. And one way to comparison you can make simply because he's big. He's the guy, isn't he? And initially his comedy is coming from the bottom of society. Chaplin was a tramp. Canteen Flesh was, and we'll talk about what that means, un peladito. Kind of like a tramp. In terms of the style of the humour, no. He's a bit diminutive. He has a funny moustache. But beyond that, no, he's more like a cross between Groucho and Chico Marx in that he's kind of a bit fly. He's on the make. Certainly the first we watch with him, he's basically lazy and hungry. But also wordplay is very important with him. I can't imagine Canteen Flesh without sound. He's all about the talking. And that's why he's nigh on impossible to translate out of Spanish. I was actually thinking, I mean, if you had that job, somebody says, right, I want you to dub a Canteen Flash film, you'd have to take the approach that was taken by the translators of Asterix. I know one of them was called Anthea Bell. I can't remember the name of the other one. Asterix in English, uh, the scripts are partially rewritten. The plots are the same, but the dialogue is rewritten to make sure there's an equal amount of wordplay to the French, but it's not the same wordplay. The example I've talked about before is in one of the films we watched, and the subtitles did not bother to translate the idiom. They just translated the words literally, which was when somebody says to Canteen Flash, what do you know about Texas? And he says, well, it used to belong to Mexico. And the person says, no, I mean the tiles on the roof. <laughs> Spanish word for tiles is tejas. So what I think we're just going to do today is kick around the idea because 
if these were British films, these are definitely the kind of things we would have covered on Jaffa Cakes of Proust. It's a country talking to itself. When I was watching the first film uh, from 1940, Ahí está el detalle, that's the point, there's the rub, I started thinking about Will Hay. Yes. So you can kind of draw a line, you know, Will Hay and Old Mother Riley, George Formby, in that the country is talking to itself. It's not going to be easy stuff to export. But also you've got a lot of quick dialogue, wordplay, and you drew the comparison with Sir Humphrey, but in a slightly different way, because as you said, when you're listening to one of Sir Humphrey's attempts to baffle and bemuse Hacker, if you listen very, very carefully, he is actually making sense. Whereas Canton Flassen, as you explained to me, Canton Flassen is an actual saying. I suppose it's Stanley Unwin, but they're all, it's all, um, I was going to say plain English, but you know what I mean. There's no twisting of words to make nonsensical words, but it's just the, the way that they're assembled. They sound correct, but ultimately they're meaningless. See, Spanish is a more regulated language than English. They have this Royal Academy, and they have allowed the verb cantinfliar. You can accuse somebody. Uh, yeah, I'm getting some of this from Wikipedia. That you can accuse somebody. Estás cantinfliando. You're cantinflessing. I think the language is called cantinflismo. And it's one of his trademarks. You see, somebody will ask him to talk about something. It might be something he doesn't understand, or it just might be something that he doesn't want to be drawn on. And often, when we consider the way people talk, we find, no matter how many different types of person we talk to, not only with their own languages, but simply their own dialects and their own ways of talking, there is intercommunication and intercommunication naturally. And when you take this as a whole without actually not considering the parts, but allowing those parts to stay to one side to be where they need to be to be protected from any negative consequences of the larger argument that's being made within what I would think is possibly an agreement outside the argument. Yeah, as you see, I've just not said anything there. It's the ability to talk and talk and talk and not say anything. There's nothing to decode. But the idea is, is the person listening would not like to admit or would just assume that if they don't understand it, it's some cleverness they've missed. So we started in 1940. Ahí está el And this is the initial most famed persona of Cantifles. So there's a thing called pelado, which means peeled, bare. And it's a kind of tramp. And... Cantinflas' persona is more el peladito. Adding ito or ita on the end of something is a way of making it diminutive, affectionate. So he's he's a born idle scrounger, but we like him. It it would be like if English had the word trampy. He's not a tramp, he's a trampy. <laughs> he's a hobobo. <laughs> but it isn't Christmas. <laughs> He's there, he's got his funny little hat. His moustache is divided. He's just got two little bits at the side. You can Google image search. In fact, a lot of you probably have seen pictures of Cantinflas, and some of you might have even seen Around the World in 80 Days, his most famous work in English. But that's telling you something about him as well. He's not macho. He hasn't quite got it. He hasn't got the big, thick, black moustache that curls at the end. So he's not quite a real man. He's wearing his undershirt. 
and little neckerchief. This was one thing I had to research. I'm still not sure I got it. His gabardina. Did you notice, Gary, that all the way through he had this thing over his shoulder? Yes. That just looked like a bit of bell pull or a piece of rope or something. That's actually meant to be what's left of his raincoat. <laughs> and all that's left of it is just enough for him to throw over his shoulder. And his pants are too low and his shoes are too big. The plot of this film just goes on a children's film foundation level of coincidence. Oh, you compared it to Ray Cooney, though, didn't you? Well, there was... I was getting that kind of vibe, a sort of Leslie Phillips, Ray Cooney farce, because the bulk of the film took place all within the house, and there was a lot of sort of back and forth in between rooms and so on. And yeah, I mean, pretty much I think the first half of the film was all set within the space of about an hour or so. And so, yeah, I was getting vibes of a kind of multi-camera. I mean, obviously it wasn't multi-camera, but you know the kind of thing I mean. So it's basically, it felt like something that could work very well on the stage. So the plot is this. Canteen Flash, and that's the name of his character, has a girlfriend who is a maid at the house of this important man. He's got a moustache. Oh, he has a moustache. Yeah, I was really disappointed that he didn't pull it off and use it like a bat rang at some point. But anyway, he's a very important man, but he's intensely jealous. He's sure that his wife is cheating behind his back. Canteen Flesh just likes to turn up at the kitchen door when there's a little special whistle, and he'll get some leftover food from the house, uh, maybe something to drink. But tonight, his girlfriend says, you're not getting anything to eat until you kill the family dog, because it's got rabies. I just said that out loud. It's just occurred to me what a peculiar starting point it is for a comedy. The dog is called Bobby, and he is a fox terrier. Meanwhile, <laughs> the important man, I haven't written down his character name, the important man, his wife, Dolores, I had to keep explaining this, she gets called by three different names, because Dolores can be shortened to Lola, which can then be... Sh- diminutivized, lengthened to Lolita. Uh, Dolores actually means pains. It's a, it's a Catholic thing, I think, naming after uh, some saint or maybe uh, Our Lady of Pains. Well, she's now being blackmailed by an ex-boyfriend. I guess maybe it's just got about oh, dead jealous her husband is. He's got some old love letters. He's her ex. She's not fooling around behind his back, but knowing how the husband will react and he's a gangster, and he's called Bobby, and his gangster nickname is the Fox Terrier. (laughs) I can see a situation in which some confusion may arise. And it does. There's a Jack Benny principle operating here. That whole thing that as long as people are laughing at the show I'm in, doesn't really matter whether they're laughing at me. Everybody who's nice in this film gets a joke. In fact, probably my favourite one isn't one that's said by Canteen Flesh. So there's this whole thing, yeah, kill the dog, okay, right. And the master of the house says, dispose of the body, but don't put it near the apple tree, or the apples will taste like our dog. <laughs> I know you said this is an early Canteen Flesh film, and the version we had had different opening credits that had been done in the 60s. But one of the interesting things about Canteen Flesh is that he, I think he made a couple of films before he then went into partnership he was a partner in the film company. So even if it's so early that maybe it's not being sold entirely as a vehicle for him, 
though, having a look at... I can't date some of the posters. That's also the thing. You, you never know if you're looking at a re-release poster, but I'm pretty sure it was sold on his name, and yet everybody gets a fair share of the comedy. Actually, you were talking about Shameless at one point. Do you want to bring... Yeah, well, this is... It's going to sound strange, because I'm going to draw an analogy with something that I've never seen. I never, I never watched Shameless. I was aware of it. And I think the US version, I think, is still going today. But I was thinking, I suspect there is a similarity here between Canton Flask being sort of feckless and not particularly scrupulous even, and yet we're still on his side. And so I was thinking there's probably a bit of the Frank Gallagher effect going on here. We only watched three films because I've only got four films on DVD. I'm just getting into this. But he's got this magnetism. It it will take something for, for me to lose sympathy with him. Actually, I do him a little bit in one of the films. He does have this ability to sell the part he's in. I mean, remember me saying before about how I didn't care for Shelley, for instance? Yeah. And it would be fairly easy to fall into the same trap with Canton Flass. But for some reason, difficult to pinpoint why, he's just got that charisma. And I think that you sort of know that deep down, he's a good person, even though he's taking advantage of the situation that he finds himself in. And put it this way, the way that you just described the opening of the film, there's a long protracted period where he's really, really not at all keen on shooting the dog. It would be a completely different thing if the maid said to him, look, I need to, to take care of the dog, and he just took the gun and said, okay. Suddenly, then you'd, you'd have a different sort of outlook on him. But no, he protests about that for quite some time. Even when he then later on gets mixed up in a situation which he's able to take advantage of, you still think that, well, compared to like the, the big businessman in the household and so on, his motives are quite sort of pure and innocent. He's just happy to have a roof over his head and drink some liqueur and smoke some cigars and have a kip. And that, that's about as far as his ambitions go. And even when he's explaining that he doesn't find that work suits him, thinks that the work is just slightly alien to him, it just doesn't sit well with him, you could lose sympathy with him then, but you don't, because he just seems to have a nice, simplistic outlook on things. There's this fantastic line, if work was good, the rich would hoard it and only they would have jobs. <laughs> Difficult to argue that. Yeah, he's he's not Jack the Lad. He's more the Robin Nedwell version of Mike Upchat than the John Alderton version. Just as a quick um, side note, by the way, we're not likely to be doing the Upchat connection slash line anytime soon on Sitcom Club, are we? Why? Well, I think you described it as pish. Was that the, the expression that you used? Um... I think I just said it was it was a bit weak. That's all. It just yeah. It's okay, it passes the time. So yes, his motives are pure. Okay, this was another thing that occurred to me. Racial homogeneity. I'm not saying that Mexico was only full of Mexicans. In fact, it used to have a society that was organized on how Spanish you were as opposed to how native you were. But I was thinking of this also in terms of US films. And something in the character of Cantinflas is a bit like the parts in the US that were given to Step and Fetch It, uh, Willie Best, who was sometimes billed as Sleep and Eat. I remember reading Matthew Sweet talking about 
George Formby and saying that in some ways George Formby is playing a minstrel part. He's got simple wants. He's at a disconnect. But Britain itself is more homogenous than the US. They don't have this easily identifiable... I'm getting into some complicated stuff. I'm not making any great accusations that haven't already been made. But there isn't this easily identifiable level of society that a huge number of the audience can't see themselves in. So you've seen like uh, Zenobia, uh, Harold Lloyd's Feet First, and there is that character. It's like, look, you can laugh at him, but he's not one of you. As is often said in Justification, Step and Fetch it was embraced by the African-American community. He was partially for them, but he was also partially for the other side of society. Whereas George Formby is working class and British, and Kenton Fles is at a low level of Mexican society, it's going to be harder to see him as other. But he turns up, I mean, he's eating somebody else's food and drinking their booze, and then, thanks to an hilarious mix-up, he ends up being implanted in the household and the mistaken belief, oh yeah, there's an inheritance and a brother involved. And he ends up being implanted in the rich man's household under the mistaken belief that he is a brother who has an inheritance behind him. And so naturally what Kenny Fless does is helps himself to all the cigars and all the brandy. But just, just to go back to what you were saying about how he's solidly working class. That's his, that's his character, that's his background. Because it's established very early on in the film that this is a sizable house with a householder who is well off, then automatically we are in sympathy with Canton Flask when he's trying to catch a nice wee bit of chicken. He's not shoplifting, for goodness sake. He's not, <laughs> he's, he's, he's not trying to take something from somebody who's in a similar position to him, because it's established straight away. And also, this is quite a sizable house for a couple and a maid to live in as well. So all of that's sort of communicated very early on. And so when he's then sort of at the back and just waiting for his signal to get in and get a nice wee plate of din-dins, then you're not going to feel any kind of anger or discomfort towards him. Why, why would you? Because it's clearly established that He's our guy, basically. He's a sort of Norman Wisdom figure in a way. It's a kind of comedy that's gone. I'm going to quote Matthew Sweet again, because when Ken Dodd died, he said that that was the end of a specific kind of comedy. The comedy of the rent book. Comedy of owning stuff on the never-never. We have people now who are in poverty, but also society has been atomized. You don't necessarily have community poverty in the same way. So as a result, it's things like Shameless. Is there a comic figure in the UK today who is on benefits and lovable? I can't think of one right at this moment, but just going back even just 10 years or so, I'm thinking of Jim Royal and the Royal Family and... More so, I'm thinking of Twiggy, Jeffrey Hughes' character. Because he is portrayed as... There's no, there's no getting away from it. He's portrayed as sometimes a thief. 
he brings round to Christmas dinner, he brings round a couple of bottles that he's managed to knock off from a pub. You know, they've still got like the, what do you call those things when you turn the bottle upside down? Optics. Yeah, they've still got them attached, for goodness sake. He talks about how, you know, the money that he saves on his heating bills because he's doing like six months of prison every year. And yet you're still on his side. He's still deep down he's a nice guy you don't you don't really think of him doing anything that's really sort of beyond the pale or untoward and what have you so okay i'm completely wrong then there are such figures in recent history there's not that many though i can't think of too many examples anyway so uh, what happens is uh, multiple mistaken identity kenny fuss is believed to be the brother-in-law of the rich powerful man it's also believed that he murdered Bobby the Fox Terrier, the gangster, not the dog. Uh, he ends up in court. He's found guilty and is killed by a firing squad. Oh, no. <laughs> I think you can work out. <laughs> it doesn't end that way. But we then have this courtroom scene of him mocking the authority of the court through wordplay, through answering too literally for not understanding. And I've said it before, George Orwell, what he described as the worm's eye view. So then, looking in our vault of what we had, we had to take a massive leap. It's, I mean, I asked around, and nobody seemed to have any great knowledge or enthusiasm about Canteen Flesh. Maybe if my father-in-law was still alive, this show would be very different. You've got to excuse us, but sometimes we have to step outside our comfort zone just to get new views on things. Could we just briefly cover which film was it that you took your father-in-law to see and his capsule review of it afterwards? That was Singing in the Rain. Uh, They were doing a showing of Singing in the Rain at cinemas. And my wife and I wanted to go along. We were looking after father-in-law that day. So we took him along and we sat through the film, came out and said, oh, that was great. And he said, I've already seen that film. (laughs) And yeah, he probably saw it when it came out. He might not have even ever seen it since. That's kind of thing. (laughs) But his favourite Canteen Flesh film was El Padrecito from 1964. So, Canteen is well-loved because he was seen as a champion of the little men in everything. Uh, he got involved in Mexico's apparently insanely complicated labour union disputes, donated to orphanages, donated to the Catholic Church, which was seen as a good thing, and that's something to talk about when we get into the plot of this one and at one point was seen as something of a moderate figure of resistance against the one-party rule the institutional revolutionary party was in government for 71 years in mexico so this was again very familiar and very unfamiliar in places now now we're into color this is lovely rich beautifully photographed somebody said let's watch a mexican comedy from the 1960s you might be expecting it to be down a few levels. You're racist. But, you know, back in the good old days, when foreign films would just turn up on terrestrial TV and you might not have any choice than to take a look at them for a few minutes, you could often tell the foreign films because they didn't quite look the same. But this, it's got rich colour and fantastic cinematography. In some ways, it's a remake of the Bing Crosby film Going My Way. In a lot of ways, it reminded me of Bless Me Father, but with Candy and Flash being sort of both Daniel Abiani and um, Arthur Law. But on the other hand, it was a bit weird how 
unconditionally good the Catholic Church has seen in this film. And yet, in a way, it was partially a film about the Second Vatican Council and how Cantinflas was in favour of a more modern Catholicism, less traditionally reverent. But I can't think of an English-language film I've seen that has this point of view that's made in the 60s. I guess in some ways it weirdly reminded me of The Vicar of Dibley, but The Vicar of Dibley seemed a lot more itchy about its Christianity. It seems on one hand to be fairly stock type, the groovy priest, the irreverent priest, the funny priest, but groovy, irreverent, funny priests don't talk so much religion in things that I've seen. He's, yeah, he's groovy and funny and modern and what have you, but he's also taking it entirely seriously. He is an ordained priest and he's got, as you'd expect, He's got excellent knowledge of his subject. He's not a chancer. He's he's not somebody who's trying to sort of bluff his way through or anything like that. And even though at one point he does actually admit to making up a biblical quote to get him out of an awkward situation, but he can he can he can do that with authority because it sounds legit. That was the bit that reminded me of Bless Me Father. There's quite a few points in Bless Me Father where Father Duddleswell is bending the rules. In fact, sometimes just tying a knot in them. There's at least one case where he outright lies about somebody's status as a Catholic because he thinks it's for the greater good. Should I respect the spoilers for an episode of Bless Me Father? If you don't want to know what happens in this episode of Bless Me Father, then cover your ears for the next 20 seconds. So the whole thing is that an atheist has effectively been buried in the Catholic cemetery to spare his daughter any pain of thinking of him as being in hell. And a nun says, Catholic doctrine, the fires of hell are real. And Father Duddleswell says, yes, they are. And then when he's lying, he said, but who but a madman would think there was actually anybody there? So that's the kind of bending and twisting the plastic Catholicism, which is actually really common amongst the Catholic population. You'll always find some bit that the yeah, but... Hey, a few weeks ago, I found myself in a room with some of Orange County's best-connected gay Catholics. <laughs> Can you just repeat that sentence? Because I, I just there's something beautifully structured about that. Some of Orange County's best-connected gay Catholics. Now, that is uh, an intro worthy of Pebble Mill at one. <laughs> if I heard that, I'm staying put to, to find out what's coming next. What we're saying is there's a great deal of doctrinal flexibility among practicing Catholics. Letter of the law, spirit of the law, there's elements of that. So what the plot is, there's an old priest who lives with his sister and niece, and the parish or the diocese think he's not really capable of handling his own parish anymore. So they're sending a new priest with possibly a view I think he's kind of acting as a curate, but there's possibly a view to him taking over the parish. So you get tensions there. The old priest, Father Damien, his sister, uh, tries to make life hell for the new priest, played by Cantine Fles. Padre Sebastian, that's his name. Okay, this one had a really funny structure, a really odd pace, because it got to the point... How long was this film? About two hours, 15? 
Yeah, now I was asking you about that because they're all fairly lengthy films because the first one I think was about an hour and three quarters and then these are two from the 60s. They are both sort of two and a quarter hours. There's bits and pieces in them that if you were the ITV film buyer, if you were Leslie Halliwell back in the day and you were told you had to get this into a two-hour slot, there were bits and pieces in both that you could remove without really knackering the the plot terribly. The bullfight... I wasn't so much thinking of the bullfight, I was just thinking of a couple of the instances where he starts to assume some of the, the duties, like he's asked to do a christening and so on. And, you can and refuses be, because he doesn't like the kid's name. You could, you could probably drop little bits and pieces like that without messing up the continuity too much. He effectively sabotages <laughs> an upcoming marriage. Or rather, he doesn't think that they're ready, so he finds a way of setting them against each other just to prove that this is not something to be rushed into. You remember what you were saying about Mulberry? At one point you thought it was just going to be, oh boy, I don't know how we did it before you came to town. Yes. Yeah. There is an element of that, but he sells it. And he's saying it at quite a hot time. He got a letter apparently from a number of Latin American priests saying thank you for supporting the Second Vatican Council. Vatican II, they called it. Thank you for supporting some of the findings in that. And it also brings us to Latin American Christianity and Catholicism particularly being a little bit different because there are traces in this of liberation theology. Liberation theology is still seen as a bit fringe. Effectively, in its most extreme and pure form, liberation theology is the only part Marx got wrong was the bit about God. God is real, but everything else Marx describes is the kingdom of heaven. It's Christian communism. And there have been arguments between Latin American priests and the Vatican. We now have an Argentinian pope, and have you noticed just how left-wing he comes across on economic affairs? I don't think he is himself a liberation guy. But you get a Latin American, you're probably going to get somebody who's at least a bit social democratic in the outlook. Also, when we think of you know, Mexican Catholicism, I mean, at the time the film came out, something like 90% of the Mexican population would have identified as Catholic. You might be tempted to think of the same relationship as the church in Ireland, that quasi-theocratic influence. Well, it just so happens that on occasion I've been to the movies to see a movie that isn't even finished yet. One of them was Kung Fu Panda 3. Uh Not relevant to our discussion. The other was a film that was at the time called Cristiada and eventually came out as Four Greater Glory, which was about the time when the Mexican government decided to utterly eliminate the influence of the Catholic Church on the people And that basically meant that the uh, Federalists would come into the church and say, everybody get out, and then they'd kill the priest. This was not taken well by many of the Mexican people. Certainly not by the priests, I would imagine. There was a slight fracas, and certainly within, if you go back a few generations in my wife's family, there were people killed during it. So yeah, there was a film about that. And... I thought, oh boy, you know, given the way things are going, given the way people are talking about cultural wars, a movie which is about the government oppressing and murdering Christians, well, this is really going to be a hot button top. Oh, people are going to be sending people to see this film. It's just going to be a huge hit with a certain kind of authoritarian. But it wasn't. 
On an entirely different topic, most of the cast in that film were kind of brown, <laughs> being Mexican. I don't know. Am I putting two and two together and getting cinco? No, I think there's probably something in that. Yeah. It may not be a deliberate thing, but it, I think that there's probably an element of so much culture gets categorized and people who that film might have appealed to sort of take one look at it and think, oh, okay, this isn't for me, foolishly. And it is, it's, it's easy to do because, I mean, okay, this is, this is going to sound ridiculous, but a handful of my favorite comedy sketches over the years came from a Welsh language series. It's called Lollipop. It was on S4C back in the day. It was about 15 years ago or so. And I have absolutely no idea how I found that program. It was just completely by accident. And I watched it regularly. And sometimes I would watch it with the English subtitles on. Sometimes I was even watching it without the English subtitles. And yet there are bits and pieces of that show that I still remember. Even though I've only seen them once, and I've probably got no way of ever being able to track them down again. There's bits and pieces of that show that I absolutely loved, and they're still in my mind right now. And yet, if I'd just sort of taken a sort of black and white view of things, that's not a deliberate pun, but, you know, you would have just looked at it and thought, uh, oh, Welsh language sketch show, well, I don't speak Welsh, therefore this isn't for me. And then I would have missed out on it. And... I suspect that probably too many people do that with culture generally. It doesn't necessarily help the fact that this is more common about television than, than film, but it doesn't necessarily help the fact that you've now got so many niche outlets. The way that they present themselves, it's not deliberately designed to alienate anybody, obviously, because no business is going to do that. But sometimes you you get the impression that it's like, okay, they're sitting at their stall and they're saying, right, this channel is for this particular demographic. This is what we have to offer. And there isn't necessarily a huge attempt to bring in other viewers and to say, but it doesn't matter if you don't meet our target demographic, there might be something here that you like. I'm sure there are channels that do do that, but just it's the impression you get sometimes when you're just scrolling through the dial and what have you. Just to go back, to something, by the way, because I just want to quickly mention uh, if you think For Greater Glory sounds interesting, it is in English, but a kid gets tortured for his beliefs. It's not family viewing. When we were watching the film the other day, and we were talking about this, you know, the, the only bit that Marx got wrong was the, the religious aspect, this, this theory. I remember saying to yourself, don't you often get it with, particularly with politicians, that they're quite often in sympathy with religious leaders when it comes to social issues. And yet when somebody from religious background, could be the Pope or whoever it may be, when they start talking about the economy and they start talking about redistribution of wealth, then suddenly it gets bad reaction from the politician, depending on where they are on the spectrum. And within an hour of us having that conversation, I saw a headline in the opinion section, in the opinion section of the Telegraph, and it's called by Norman Tebbit. And the headline is, Archbishop Welby should promote church attendance, not failed economic panaceas. And I don't need to click on the link because I know what it's going to be about. Welby presumably has spoken in some way about redistribution of wealth. And this doesn't meet with Tebbit's approval from his political point of view. It is an interesting topic. And 
I did. I really enjoyed this film from the point of view that, like you said about the Vicar of Dibley, it felt like not necessarily walking on eggshells, but mid nineteen nineties is at a time when the influence of the church and church attendance is on the wane, and so it's not wanting to alienate anybody. It's not wanting to say this is a religious sitcom, you know, and there's going to be tons of jargon in it, and if you don't know the old and new testament back to front, then you're not going to get any of this. It's nothing like that at all. And yet th- this film's much more comfortable because, as you said, it-, it knows its audience. And Catholicism is woven in, like um, Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's religious, but it's also kind of a symbol that just says Mexico. People have tattoos of it. It's like a badge of the nation, among other things. But as we say in the pacing, after a while, it felt like I was binge-watching a series rather than watching a feature film. Because to give it full credit, you know, new developments would happen, as well as little set pieces where he shows how unconventional he is in his beliefs. There's the issue of the old priest sister hates him. He's giving the priest's niece advice on her love life. She's dating the son of the local boss. It's not really a type you really get now. I wasn't entirely sure what his relationship was with the community. I'm not sure if he was the biggest employer. I think there was some talk, wasn't there, about him being a contractor. But it's something, you see, I mean, maybe the example we might most be familiar with is boss Jim Gettys in Citizen Kane. Definitely some idea it was in the US, and it seems to be here in Mexico. So he's just the local influencer. You don't do anything without making sure that he's cool with it and also he's an atheist oh no because one of the reasons I wanted to do this then is looking at right how much does this relate to stuff we've seen in our own culture and US culture and how much doesn't it so there's a new groovy priest in town and he's bumping up against the local atheist it's a right wing it's a bourgeois thing this is Cantin Fles now as a member of the establishment he was the richest actor in the world one of the things Father Sebastian does is set up a school within the church. I don't know about now, but certainly at that point, there wasn't a state school system in Mexico. Schools had to be formed, and for a school that's available to all, it's probably going to be attached to a church. And there's this whole thing about how Silvestre, that's the boss, that's his first name, it becomes important later because. Silvestre means wild, as in like wildflowers, flores silvestres. So later on, because it has a double meaning, Padre Sebastian is able to make a speech, which is slagging this guy off, but not. So he's talking about flowers and weeds, hierbas silvestres, but we all know who he's really talking about. He's against there being a school set up in the local community because he needs to keep the local community stupid. And I think there's that part of because it prevents him being the boss and making money. So the villain in this is an atheist, but I also think, as far as I can tell with my feeble Spanish and subtitles that are not always correctly translated, he's a capitalist. Can I just point out that there is a similarity between the big boss man here and Arkwright? Arkwright doesn't have that level of an influence in the community, though. He doesn't, but he has similar views when it comes to education. I mean, he's on the record as saying that no good will come of BBC Two 
and that <laughs> uh, further education just you know gives people ideas and you don't know where that's going to lead. So it's not a lot to say about El Padrecito unless you have anything left to say. You mentioned there as well about when he's given a speech. That seems to be a regular thing in Cantifas films, is that there will be a point, might not be the, the conclusion to the film, but there is a point at We've which... We've only seen three. Well, in the three that we saw, there was always a point at which he has a fairly lengthy monologue. And as I understand it, just quickly going back to the first film, the, the court scene, I think, that is partly based on a real-life case. And it seems to be, I think it's probably fair to say that if we were to watch many more Canton Flask films, they would all have an element of, I hesitate to use this word because it sounds negative in 2018 for some reason, but moralizing. There's an element there that, okay, it's not all just, you know, knockabout humor. There's also going to be a lesson you can take from this as well. And that's still something that's fairly common in, say, American sitcoms today. And so, yeah, you get a point at which, because you have empathised with his character throughout, you're then much more receptive to hearing sort of five, six, seven minutes just from himself. Almost, not quite, not breaking character, but almost as if he's just ever so slightly just stepped beyond the uh, the free walls and there's some truth in what he's saying at this point. This is not necessarily just the character that's speaking to you, it's the man himself. Well, let's go to the daddy of them all in that case. Uh, last film we watched, Su Excellencia, 1966, and you knew what was going to happen in terms of the general plot. We're in the Eastern European country of Pepislavia and there is an embassy there representing a country called La Republica de los Cocos, which means the Coconut Republic. And Cantin Fles is a character called Lopez, and he's probably the most junior person at the embassy, and he's the person who stamps the visas and approves visas. The visa part is only open 15 minutes a day, Monday to Friday. And Gary, what did you say as we were watching him goofing around? I'm thinking straight away, okay, we know that there's going to be all manner of political shenanigans going on here. If he's a lowly clerk, then he's either going to get mistaken for somebody else and therefore get embroiled in some sort of plot, or he's going to suddenly find, say, King Ralph style that he is promoted way above his current position and then has to adjust to his new responsibilities. And sure enough, that's what happened. Part of my reasoning for this was it reminded me of two Morecambe and Wise films. There were elements of the intelligence men, because there are shenanigans involving the Eastern European country of Pepislavia, and we get a sexy spy at one point. And there are also elements of The Magnificent Two, though fortunately. So there's a revolution. Actually, there's three revolutions. <laughs> And the last and most successful revolution just happens to be conducted by the godfather of Lopez. And so Lopez is appointed ambassador. He goes from the bottom to the top and immediately he extends the opening hours so people can get their visas to get out of where they are and get into not Mexico. But then there comes the matter that there's a meeting of all the world powers happening in Pepislavia. 
again, that weird, as I said, Children's Film Foundation-esque, not, not even necessarily a break with reality, just metaphors and actual things just get blurred. We're having a meeting of the UN to decide how the world is going to be run. That's what it feels like. I was just saying at one point, this is a prequel to Euthanasia. <laughs> and the key part of the film happens on Christmas Eve as well. I didn't pick that up. All oh, right. And it's rather delicately balanced because we basically have our hero with the casting vote as to whether capitalism or communism is going to rule the world, effectively. Hell of a way to run things. What's supposed to happen? So once I, well, yeah, went, went to a vote, was carried by one vote. It's, it's, it's not like that, you know, with a tiny percentage of a majority, you're going to absolutely annihilate your... Inf- oh, my God. Well, what would you want, basically? You want a threshold in there. So it can't be carried by just one vote. You know, there has to be a certain number of votes for anything binding or of that magnitude to take place. Shrewd political brain there you got, Gary. So if we kind of get a, a little crash course on world affairs, and this is why as relatably international as it first appeared, and the way I could kind of tie it to Morco and Wise films, it wasn't a film that could be made, certainly by the US, because the US get parodied as Dolaronia, and couldn't be made by the UK, even though maybe it should have been... Right, okay, so there's this crash course at the beginning. The assistant ambassador is explaining to the initial ambassador about how the world works. There are the red countries, there are the green countries, and there are the sweet countries. And the sweet countries are there for the picking between either the red or the green countries. So you're either going to fall in with the US, sorry, Dolaronia. Or you're going to fall in with the USSR. Sorry, Peperslavia. And as I've said, but one of the things in this is that the country is talking to itself. Or in some ways, maybe the larger Latin American world here is talking to itself. You can't really have. I wouldn't have thought in the 60s there would have been a British film which said, look, we are not a world power. We are at the mercy of world powers. As much as Britain loves an underdog, and you could have a film about a man who is promoted from the bottom level to the top level over the course of one meal, you couldn't have the central thrust of it being, we have control over the world's destiny in one way, but we actually have no control over our own destiny. Whichever side we pick will swamp us. The only way I think you could do it in Britain would be if it was some sort of variant on Passport to Pimlico. So if you did it about a fictitious part of the UK that suddenly, for whatever reason, had the opportunity to decide where it wanted to position itself in the geopolitical sphere. I mean, there probably are films like that, but they're not the stuff of mainstream. They're not stuff that could even gone toe-to-toe with the intelligence men or the sandwich man or stuff like that. Uh, you can you know, point to stuff like the bed-sitting room, which... Britain is only a few people, and the institutions have outlived most of the people. There were people at the time willing to tear open the wounds of the country, but not when you're at that level, not superstars 
making films for all the family. I'm not going to tell you how it ends. You've probably got half an idea of how it ends, but there's a speech at the end, and it's about 10 minutes, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And that, that scene itself is about half an hour, the, the meeting of all the nations. And we get Salchichonia, which is meant to be Germany. Salchichonia is a bit like calling a country Sausageania. And there's a peculiar little joke, which is, I mean, everything the German representative says is fair enough. And he says, obviously, we have to understand that uh, we have turned the world upside down twice and we have to admit. To but at certain points, he starts talking like Hitler. He starts, he starts rolling the R's. And I thought at one point his hair was going to flop across. <laughs> uh, but they decided not to go there. It was just the interesting thing, maybe, that he's speaking perfectly fairly, but in that style. You mentioned also that there is a nice twist when it comes to the sexy spy trying to win over the support of Kanzaflas. I'm saying no more about that. She's called Tanya, and yeah, she's effectively a honeypot. Is that what they call them? Honey trap, honey pot? Yeah, honey trap, yes. Uh, she wears this dress that's got huge cutouts in the midriff, so there's kind of the top half is held by like a bit of material down the middle on the front and back, but you can see her bare sides. <laughs> I, I think, it, you know, if you actually went to an ambassadorial reception like that, people would think you're a bit of an attention freak. <laughs> and there is one bit when, because uh, naturally there has to be a love interest because he's not playing a priest so he can have a love interest so there's this thing about him Candy Flash fancies his secretary she's not his secretary to begin with but she ends up being his secretary and there's some argument she's jealous of Tanya and he kind of doesn't say well you know don't worry about it he's, he's basically well, so it's that one bit where traditional Mexican machismo kind of robs him of some of his sympathetic qualities I'm also thinking that he is he is aware that he doesn't have feelings for the other woman. So he doesn't really feel the need to go into overdrive to convince his secretary of this because he's confident in his own mind that he's in the right. So that's sort of what drives then his reaction. He he doesn't have to start, you know, speaking at a you know a million miles an hour and making all manner of excuses as to why it definitely isn't true and what have you, because he knows it isn't true. It just didn't play well with me. It was just the one time where I thought he's not as nice as he normally is. There is one point about mentioning of uh, not having the right to strike. This is, I think, part of the big filibuster at the end. Uh, Worth mentioning that at that time, uh, the president of Mexico was Gustavo Díaz Ordaz, and he had actually uh, done the old TVAM thing. Oh, you're on strike, you're all fired. Hard authoritarian. Later, uh, after this film was made, there was a massacre of protesting students. So that's the kind of world it's coming out of. Uh, Can I just mention, so the main Russian antagonist, he he looks like Stalin. He's not meant to be at that level of society. They've got this really peculiar thing that the president of Pepperslavia is always wearing a tailcoat and has he doesn't look like the idea of a Russian premier. So maybe that's just an attempt. Anyway, the main antagonist has the best comedy name I've heard all month. Oski Poposki. <laughs> I had to admit, actually, the, there was a bit of a swerve. Because remember me saying before about 
He's either going to get overpromoted or he's going to get mistaken for someone. That business early on where he needs to have his jacket repaired and so he borrows the coat of the ambassador. I thought that was going to be something much more significant than it was. I thought that the, the message was going to come, well, okay, you're looking for a guy who wears this distinctive sort of mink type coat. You know, once you see him, that's the guy you're looking for. That, that's what I was expecting to happen, but no. Yeah, it's part of that loose pacing that it overall it travels in predictable ways, but from act to act, if there are acts in this, it just kind of ambles around at a leisurely pace. I think we've just broken the crust on this. If we have our heads together for next year, maybe on El Cinco de Mayo, we should look at... English language films with Canteen Flas in. And maybe one day we will actually start talking about Chesperito and El Chavo, and that's an entire other side of Mexican humour, much broader. So this has just been a little one-off special because in honour of Mexican Independence Day on September 16th, we're probably going to be doing more Jefferville's but towards the end of the year. I say probably because I never like to promise more than I can deliver. Next week, what's happening next week? Well, it is the return of the Sitcom Club. Sitcom Club is back and it'll be back each and every Friday from Friday the 21st of September because sometimes we can be a bit sort of niche. So we thought we'd come back with something nice and welcoming and recognisable. And so we're going to be talking about Heidi High. Odio! And the week after that, we're going to be talking about are you being served again to give it its American title? And don't worry, we will be getting niche at one point. We'll be talking about shows that even we hadn't heard of a few months ago. We're going to be talking about a show which originally we thought was white and is recorded on location with what we actually legitimately think is canned laughter. Yeah, that's, that's going to be a fun one. Until then, you are now leaving Jefferville. Bye con Dios. 